Oh God, we are not left without the shining light of hope on our dark horizon. There are hearts here who already know the meaning of trouble and pain and sorrow. Someday we all will. But in this interim, in this space we have left, oh God, prepare us, get us ready. May this morning's teaching, may this morning's teaching from Holy Scripture be clear to all of our thinking minds and our worshiping hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psychologists have a term that I fear now describes the prevailing mindset of this generation and this civilization. Here's the term. Normalcy bias. What's it mean? Let me put Wikipedia's definition on the screen for you. Take a look at this. Read it off the screen. The normalcy bias or normality bias refers to a mental state people enter when facing a disaster. It causes people to underestimate both the possibility of a disaster occurring and its possible effects. Hit the pause button right there. Case in point, Hurricane Katrina. We just, we just passed that anniversary, didn't we? Isaac was coming in at the same time. Hurricane Katrina back in 2005. As that massive Category 5 hurricane came howling out of the Gulf of Mexico, dead-eyed toward the city of New Orleans. And the word went out that our levee system is not going to handle so horrendous a cataclysm. By the tens of thousands, people said, it's not going to be that bad. It's okay. And by the thousands, they perished. Normalcy bias, the mental state people enter when facing a disaster, causing them to underestimate both the possibility of a disaster occurring and its possible effects. Normalcy bias. Uh, Wikipedia goes on. This often results in situations where people fail to adequately prepare. Key word. Fail to adequately prepare for a disaster. The assumption that is made in the case of the normalcy bias is that since a disaster never has occurred, then it never will occur. It's never happened on this planet. It's not going to happen. Trust me. It also results in the inability of people to cope with a disaster once it does occur. People with a normalcy bias have difficulties reacting to something they have not experienced before. People also tend to interpret warnings in the most optimistic way possible, seizing on any ambiguities to infer a less serious situation. It's not going to be so bad, I'm telling you. Don't get upset. Case in point number two, World War II Holocaust. Six million Jews perish. Initially, a few Jewish proprietors in Germany are troubled as their places of business are ransacked. Then there were a few incarcerations and arrests, but the vast majority of the Jews living in Germany minimized the Nazi threat and simply could not come to believe that there was an impending crisis endangering their very survival. 
It's not going to happen. This will pass. What did we just read? People with enormously bias have difficulties reacting to something they have not experienced before. People also tend to interpret warnings in the most optimistic way possible, seizing on any ambiguities to infer a less serious situation, end quote. So here's the question. Are you and am I, are we also suffering from a normalcy bias, just like the citizens of New Orleans, just like the Jews of the Holocaust? Is that our mindset as well? Open your Bible with me, please, to the theme text for this little three-part mini-series that's launching this new year. Open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the dark night rises. We were there last Sabbath. We'll be there next Sabbath, and that's it. One, two, three, and it's over. But let's go back to that theme passage. You didn't bring a Bible. Please track this. Pull the Bible out in front of you. Pull it out of the pew rack, and it'll be page 796 in your pew rack Bible. That's the New King James. I'm going to be, once again, in the NIV. This is the new NIV. I like it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 we read these words last week. We return to them. Verse 1, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well, verse 2, that the day of the Lord, by the way, day of the Lord, code, code phrase in Holy Scripture for the end of the world, code phrase for the return of Christ. For you know, verse 2, very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Verse 3, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. We learned last week, double negative. They will no not escape. Read my lips. Nobody escapes the end. Nobody. Clearly, Paul is describing a normalcy bias for the last generation living on this planet just before Jesus comes. Normalcy bias. That point is so critical. Grab your study guide. Let's, let's scribble it down right now. Pull your study guide out of your worship bulletin. There's a brand new one. This is a keeper, this study guide. Trust me, you're going to want this. And so if you don't have it, ushers, where are you, ushers? Let's go. Let's do this quickly, please, right now, ushers, if you'll stand. And those of you who are watching on uh, television, we're delighted to have you. While they are getting the study guides out, you can get the same study guide. Let me put it on the screen for you, our website. This is a little, it's a little punchy mini-series, The Dark Night Rises 2. That's today, 2. Last week was 1. Next week will be 3, and it's over. The Dark Night Rises 2. You can't miss it. You'll see the uh, Dark Night artwork on our website. Click on there. Go to 2. You'll have the same study guide, and you can... Join us. You'll want this study guide. Trust me, you will want this study guide. If you didn't get a bulletin when you came in, keep your hand up. They're going to get your way. And I want you to have the teaching that we are going to share together in Holy Scripture. All right, let's go. Jot that first one down, please. Clearly, Paul here in 1 Thessalonians 5, clearly Paul here is describing a normalcy bias as the mindset of the final generation on earth. Hey, not to worry, peace and safety. Boom, it's over. Normalcy bias. They do not believe it can happen here. Clearly, that's what Paul is describing. Now, because I, that, that Wikipedia definition is so punchy, you have it right there, but now you'll need to fill it in. Let's put the Wikipedia definition on the screen, please. The normalcy bias refers to a mental state people enter when facing a disaster. That's the key word. It's not all day long, every day. It's when you're facing a disaster that, that, that this bias kicks in. 
Keep reading. It causes people to underestimate both the possibility of a disaster occurring and its possible effects. Now, I thought this, uh, this next line, next line is, was significant. This often results in situations where people fail to adequately prepare. The whole point of a crisis is you've got to be ready before it comes. But now, normalcy bias is no big deal. People fail to prepare. Write that word in. They fail to prepare for a disaster. Keep reading. The assumption that is made in the case of normalcy bias is that since a disaster never has occurred, then it never will occur. It's never happened on this planet. It's not going to happen. Trust me. Look out. People with a normalcy bias have difficulties reacting to something they have not experienced before, tending to interpret warnings in the most optimistic way possible, seizing on any ambiguities to infer a less serious situation. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul is describing a very serious normalcy bias at the end of time, the final generation on earth, the entire planet, normalcy bias. And by the way, did you catch that word sudden? Did you catch that word suddenly? Let's read it again, verse 3. Verse 3, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. Those of you that have the New King James, sudden destruction will come on them. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not, no, not escape. Guess what? This is hardly a new thought for Paul. He happens to be borrowing it from his master. Once upon a time when Jesus was teaching, he, he sees two dramatic Old Testament narratives and he says, here you go. This is normalcy bias. Watch Jesus take two dramatic tales out of the Old Testament. Go, and in fact, I want you to see this, not just on the screen. Follow it in your Bible. So go back to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. I want you to see it right there in the Word of God. You didn't bring a Bible, then of course you can read on the screen. Those of you watching... On live streaming, I hope you have your Bible near. And in mine, it's bright red, bright red. Oh, I love this. I love my red-letter Bibles because these are the words of Christ, no question. This is Luke 17, page 26. Luke 17, here come the two dramatic narratives out of the Old Testament. Verse 26, Jesus speaking, just as it was in the days of whom? Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. Verse 27, people were eating. Is it a sin to eat? No, it is not. People were drinking. Is it a sin to drink? No, it is not. People were marrying. Is it a sin to marry? Better not be. People were marrying and being given in marriage right up until the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Normalcy bias number, illustration number one from the Lord Jesus himself. Fill it in on your study guide, please. In the days of Noah, society was enjoying peace and safety right up until sudden destruction swept them away. Just like that, it was over. No time to prepare. You had to be preparing before the event itself. Jesus says, I have another one for you. Verse 28, Luke 17. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling. Anything wrong with buying and selling? Of course not. Planting and building. Nothing wrong with that either. But the day Lot left Sodom, it was that pre-dawn moment, the purple horizon hemorrhaging with the realization that this is judgment day. And Lot and Mrs. Lot and the two girls are fleeing. That's what Jesus is talking about here. 
But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Keep your pen moving. Jot it down, will you? Also in the days of Lot, not just Noah, in the days of Lot, society was enjoying peace and safety right up until sudden destruction swept them away. Normalcy, bias, boom, and it's over. So what's your point, Jesus? What are you trying to tell us? He goes on, verse 30, Jesus speaking, and it will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. It's over. Go, move. In fact, one of the shortest lines in the New Testament, remember Lot's wife. So Paul's point is hardly a new thought here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He's simply echoing his master. In fact, scholars believe that Paul is actually taking a specific teaching of Jesus and paraphrasing it, and it's in Luke. So just turn a few pages forward in Luke till you come to Luke 21. You read these words carefully and you hear the echo of them all the way through that First Thessalonians 5 passage. This is Luke 21 now, also red letters. Verse 34, Jesus speaking. Be, this, is this is on the eve of his own death and crucifixion. Be careful, Jesus says, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly. There's that word. That day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always, therefore, on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Suddenly, it will come like a trap. A few months ago, I noticed that we had a ground squirrel that was beginning to dig down by the foundation of our house, going down, down, down. And I'm thinking, if this guy goes too far south, he's going to hit water and then it's going to come into the house. I've got to get that ground squirrel. So I went to Garen Dent's Village Hardware and I bought a small rodent trap. You ever seen those? Just a cage. Has a trap door that goes up and you have a little trigger where you place some bait. So I had that trap door right by the hole. When he comes out and he, he's hungry, he'll go in. I tried this bait, it didn't work. Next day I tried another bait, didn't work. And then I found out peanut butter, peanut butter. So I put peanut butter, came back, there he was. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the trap door on that ground squirrel trap, the trap door, does it come, does, does it come down like a garage door slowly? Keep eating your peanut butter. There's time. Keep eating. You've got more time. Does it come down that way? You kidding? Boom, it's over. That door, wham, and it's shut. That is Jesus' point. Suddenly, the trap is sprung. There's no getting out. Jesus says the whole earth will be caught in that trap. Did Jesus, is this just a uniquely New Testament idea? No, Jesus actually inspired writers in the Old Testament. Look at this. This is the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 12, no one knows when their hour will come, so people are trapped. There's that word. People are trapped by evil times that fall suddenly. Write that down. That fall suddenly upon them. Is that just in Ecclesiastes? No, look at one of the minor prophets. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 18, for the Lord will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. You know what? This normalcy bias, Christianity is plagued with it. There are vast swaths 
of the Christian community who say, end of the world, please. You're not really serious that this is going to happen that way, are you? I mean, please. It couldn't happen. Normalcy bias is not for pagans only, even for believers in Christ. In full concurrence with these pieces of evidence that we've just noted, a little lady who wrote in the 19th century issues some unmistakable warnings. May I put her words on the screen? Fill them in, please. This is from that apocalyptic classic, The Great Controversy. Take a look at this. The end will come more quickly. Write that in. The end will come more quickly than we expect. Here's another one. Great changes are soon to take place in the world, and the final movements will be... What's, what's that word? What, the final movements will be what? Rapid ones. And here's one more. Many of the prophecies are about to be fulfilled in quick succession. Boom, 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 boom. Over. Just like that. What's the point? Noah's point, Lot's point, Jesus' point, Paul's point, Ellen White's point. At a time when normalcy bias declares peace and safety will prevail, sudden destruction will end human history as we know it. That's the point. So here's the question that begs to be asked. How can we, how can we know we are approaching that point of no return? How can we know we are inexorably arriving, approaching the end of the world? Let's go back to Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's pick it up in verse 4 now. We'll add a verse that we didn't read last week. Verse 4, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong in the night or to the darkness. Now, here comes the verse we're adding. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Apparently, there is a way for the friends of Jesus to remain awake and unaffected, uninfected by this mass normalcy bias. Apparently, there is, some, there is some provision that alerts the friends of Christ so that they are not caught when that trap door drops. Before I share with you what for me is one of the most compelling evidences that we are living right now on the edge of the end, and in just one moment, I'm going to share that with you. But before I do, here are three promises. I wish you'd jot these down. Here are three promises you and I can begin to claim immediately asking God to open our eyes to see the critical trends and signs that are taking place around us. Promise number one. We won't, we won't, we won't take the time to look this up. Jeremiah 33, 3. 3, 3, 3. Jeremiah 33, 3. Jot it down, will you? God's inviting us. Call to me, and I will answer you. And I will show you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Ladies and gentlemen, let this be clear. God is not playing hide and seek. God's not saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch you by surprise. I can hardly wait. I can hardly wait to, to, to spook you. He's not playing hard to get. God says, listen, listen, listen. Call to me. Just call to me. I'll show you what you don't know. Didn't you love it when your mom came to you, and maybe it was when you went to church, she gave you that little book that, that, that was a series of connect the dots. You remember those little connect the dots puzzles? You remember that? Dot one, you draw a line to what? What's the next one? Two, and then you draw a line to? 
It's an amazing thing. Three, and you go all the way around, and suddenly what was just a series of dots, now, voila, this beautiful big picture. God is saying, hey, I know, I know, I know how the dots connect. Ask me. Ask me to show you. I want to tell you just, uh, just, just as a personal testimony, I go to Jeremiah 33, 3, often in my private prayer, and I say, God, you just said right here that you will show me what I do not know. There are a whole lot of people sleeping right now, God. Is there something I should be seeing that I need to be sharing? Open my eyes. You can do the same. Go to Jeremiah 33, 3. Put your finger on it and say, Jesus, I want to see what I do not know. I don't want to be caught by surprise. I don't want to live with normalcy bias. Oh, there's one more. You got to, and this is New Testament. Just before he is betrayed, the night of his betrayal. John chapter 16, verse 13. Red letter words, we won't look them up. I hope you mark these verses eventually in your Bible and that, that you go to them often. Jesus speaking, upper room, when he, speaking about the Holy Spirit, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth and he will tell you what is yet to come. Would you jot that down? He will tell you what is yet to come. Jesus said, hey, listen, listen, guys. You are my friends. I have called you friends. I'm not trying to surprise you. I'm not trying to catch you. Gotcha. I want you to know, so ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be open to you. I will send you the Holy Spirit and he will tell you what is yet to come. You can put your finger on John 16, verse 13. God, you've got to help me, please. And then just a few weeks ago, I found this third one. So now I have three that I claim in worship. Here's number three. This is Review and Herald, August 5, 1902. Those who place themselves under God's control to be led and guided by Him will catch the steady trend. That is a key word. Would you jot that down? Those who, are under, who place themselves under God's control to be led and guided by Him will catch the steady trend of events ordained by God to take place. I'll share the trends with you. That means I'll help you connect the dots. I'll show you the trends. Wow. Hey, listen, this, keep in mind this little caveat, please. God has never promised to reveal every detail of his end game, even to his friends on earth. There are some surprises that will be a surprise for the entire human race. In fact, Jesus himself said when he was here, yo, you're not going to know the day, you're not going to know the hour. You will not know a date for when I return. That'll be a surprise. But here are three promises with the stunning assurance that God himself will open our minds and our eyes to the trends, to the trend of events happening, swirling all around us. This is a 24-7 news cycle. The news cycle never stops. We are, we are flooded and drowning in information. God says, ask me and I'll help you pull this, this, this. I'll show you the trend. As a child of the light, as a child of the day, I am urging you, I am earnestly appealing to you, please claim these promises and ask him to show you what is yet to come. One of the critical trends I am now carefully watching, and I have a feeling you are too, is the unraveling, 
the melting down of our national and global economies. I have a file of news clippings and internet postings and financial newsletter exposés simply entitled, it's about this thick, it's a manila file folder, simply entitled, The Economy. Listen, forget about Greece. Forget about the European Union. Some of you are from Europe. Forget about China. The fact of the matter is we are facing an even greater economic collapse in our own nation of the United States of America. Just this last week, you surely were following this little, this little dot that appeared in the news. The news media reminded us this last week that we have now passed our national government debt. We have crossed the $16 trillion threshold. Never mind that the number 16 trillion is humanly impossible to fathom, all right? Nobody knows what 16 trillion is. Look at it this way. The IRS estimates that our government takes in every year $2.1 trillion in tax revenue from all sources. That would be corporate taxes, business taxes, personal taxes. $2.1 trillion a year. But just this year, Congress has voted a budget of $3.2 trillion, spending more than we have by $1.1 trillion. That difference is called the deficit, which is a euphemism for more debt. Every woman here who balances a checkbook knows that you cannot spend more than you're receiving and survive financially. Is that true? Is that true? But what's also interesting is that the interest on our national debt is now running nearly one-half trillion dollars a year just to pay the interest, not touching the 16 million, 16 trillion dollar principle. Ladies and gentlemen, if you keep spending more than you make and your interest on that accumulating debt keeps, keeps climbing, you don't have to be a rocket science. You don't have to be a Nobel laureate economist either to conclude that we are facing, we are facing a catastrophic financial collapse because the hemorrhaging is now irreversible. My friend Norm Wagnus loaned me a book over the Labor Day holiday. I had a chance to go through it. Title of the book, Aftershock written by macroeconomist David Wiedemeyer and his brother Robert and uh, Cindy Spitzer, the three of them collaborating. This book, Aftershock, has been on the Wall Street Journal business bestseller list, having predicted the first financial meltdown in our nation back in 2007 to 2009. They actually were making the prediction in 2005 and 2006. So they've gotten everybody's attention. The authors now, this economic team, has revised their book into a second edition and are now predicting an even greater aftershock from which will follow the Great Recession, which is now theoretically behind us, they write that this aftershock will be the meltdown. And they're suggesting we don't know when, but sometime 2013, 2015, maybe. We don't know for sure. They are suggesting that this, that, 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 this meltdown of the aftershock will bring, will collapse both the U.S. dollar and the U.S. government debt. Notice the language of sudden that they probably unwittingly embedded in this line from their book. Put it on the screen for you here. 
the dollar bubble, because there are two bubbles they're watching now, the dollar bubble, it's the worth of the dollar in the world and the U.S. Uh, government debt. The dollar bubble will remain relatively hidden until the end. But when it starts to blow up, it will look a lot like the financial crisis of late 2008, meaning it will come on, what are the next two words? Very quickly. Very quickly. Suddenly, Jesus says, the trap will spring. The final events will be rapid ones. Very quickly. Now notice the next line. It will be like a fire that firefighters can no longer control. In fact, it will be, I thought this was rather unique, it will be a once-in-a-life-once-in-a-history event. Not lifetime, once-in-history event. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, we are poised on the razor edge of an unprecedented economic meltdown but you listen to both political parties who coincidentally both have concluded their recent presidential conventions and you would think that with their popular hero at the helm, this baby can be turned around. It's going to work someday. It's called normalcy bias. There are people high enough and bright enough to know the truth. They're not going to tell little people like you and me for fear of creating some sort of panic. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. i tell you what's happening with those two presidential con uh, conventions. They were simply whistling past the graveyard. Let's do a little bit of sanctified dot connecting for a moment to remind ourselves why the economy is such a critical bellwether trend. I'm going to give you six dots. Watch how these six dots can now connect. Six dots. They're in your study guide. You brood over it later on. You just write them down now. Dot number one, we will all accept this dot, I am certain. Dot number one, our national, global, civil, and social infrastructure depends on the solvency of the economy. Yes or no? But of course. But of course. It all depends on the solvency of the economy. That's dot one. Let's go to dot number two. Dot number two, if the economy collapses, then law and order are likely to do the same. Isn't that right? Just look, rewind the video to Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. When the catastrophe hit, law and order finish. Just two months ago in Athens, what are they doing? They are rioting, burning vehicles on the streets of that ancient city. Why? Because once the economy is insolvent, you're threatening my very survival, and the masses will rise up. Dot number three, jot it down. If law and order collapses, then strident measures will have to be enacted in an attempt to restore it. True or false? You have to. If you don't, it's curtains for the whole, the whole civilization. Strident measures will have, to be reenact, will have to be enacted. In fact, you have the blogosphere right now going hot over the Patriot Act. And I've checked it out. There really was a Patriot Act, and it really does give the president and the military police powers over this nation. It's been enacted. It's there. Dot number four. Such drastic measures undertaken in a time of crisis, which, which will be what, we, what will have to be done, but such drastic measures open the door to the curtailing, write it down, of civil liberties. You say, ah, oh, Dwight, you're just making that up. No, I'm not. September 11, we're coming up to that anniversary in just a few hours, aren't we? September 11, 2001, three days or two days after September 11, South Bend Tribune, front page, I still remember reading the report, a survey of Americans 
found out that between 51, I don't know what the number was, 51, 52, 53% of Americans surveyed told the, told the surveyors, I am willing to yield some of my civil liberties for the sake of personal and national security. I'll, I'll, I'll let it go. Let me tell you something. In a crisis that will sweep across the cities of this nation, will Americans be willing to let go civil liberties for the sake of security? You bet. Dot number five, jot it down, please. If civil liberties are curtailed for the sake of national security, then legislation to enforce a public, even religious act of conformity becomes feasible. Fascinating. Let me share this with you. Michael Barkin, professor of social science at the University of New York in Buffalo, studied the effect disasters can have on people's attitudes. And I'm indebted to my friend Marvin Moore, who includes this research in his book, Could It Really Happen? I want to put uh, Barkin's words on the screen for you. You'll, you'll, you'll fill them in. One of Barkin's most significant conclusions was that, quote, fascinating, look at this, disaster creates conditions peculiarly fitted to the rapid alteration of belief systems. What I believed before is now suddenly up for grabs in the time of a crisis or disaster. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Keep reading. Belief systems which under non-disaster conditions might be dismissed now receive sympathetic consideration, end quote. We, we would never do that. We would never do that in America. But suddenly now the conditions have changed. And what I never would have done before, I'm willing to do now. Dot number six. If some form, final dot, if some form of prescribed moral conformity is made a legal mandate, then the great controversy scenario of Revelation 13 is suddenly now very possible. Ladies and gentlemen, six dots. You can get there from here. You can get there from an economy that is on the cliff to the fulfillment of Revelation 13. Six dots. You can get there in six dots. Isn't that amazing? No wonder Paul is so adamant that we live out our divine destiny. Read it again one last time. Pick it up in verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, this is 1 Thessalonians 5. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. No, 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 no. Verse 5. You are all children of the light. Do you know what it means when it says children of the light? That means we're children of Jesus. Who's the light of the world? Who's the light of the world? It's Christ. So when you're a children of, when I'm a child of the light, I'm a child of Christ. Paul's saying, hey guys, don't worry, don't worry. We are all children of Christ. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, verse 6, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Children of Christ, let us be awake. Ellen White a century ago, wrote a one-sentence prayer. I've scribbled it in my Bible, put it on the screen for you. God of heaven, wake us up. God of heaven, wake us up. God of heaven, wake us up. That's the line to tweet to the world, by the way. That's the line to tweet to your little world. God of heaven, wake us 
up. Because the dark night is rising faster than we first imagined. And we still have a work to do. We have lives to prepare for Jesus. We have people to warn for Jesus. We have a world yet to reach for Jesus. And we must reach this world in this generation. We do not have decades now. We do not have decades now. We have years. Some of you have only months left. God of heaven, wake us up now, please. I want to conclude. I told you last week, didn't I t t tell you last week I got an email at the beginning of the summer and then another one at the end? Let me, let me just end now with that email I got at the end of the summer from a total stranger. Hello, Pastor. I'll keep it short. I'm 25, doing mission work in Africa from Boise, Idaho, preaching my first evangelism campaign last month in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. In the midst of 20,000 UN troops protect, protecting Goma, the city where he's preaching, from attacks by a huge rebel army. How'd you like to be preaching with the army ringing the city? Was with a team of 19 other speakers. Thousands were baptized. 87 at my site will be in Ghana in November for another series with a team of 44 other speakers. And I'm currently in Rwanda doing work. Turns out he's been listening to the Pioneer Podcast. Two big things I've learned. Number one, every Friday night I pray for five people who I know are either lost or haven't completely discovered the full Bible truth. And number two, I pray frequently to have the heart of God for this lost world. Also, those teachings have definitely, definitely reinforced my desire above all else that God's Spirit be poured out so we can tell the world and go home. So I wrote this kid back, 25 years old, never met him in my life. I said, how, do you, how, does, how does a 25-year-old American end up in Africa? Tell me a story. Just got the, just printed the email off yesterday. He said, it's nigh impossible to express in words how, how much this world needs to hear about Jesus and his soon coming, all seven plus billion of them. I got hit hard with this third member of the Godhead. He means the Holy Spirit. On May 11th of this year, about 11.30 at night, was laying down on, I like this, was laying down on my comfortable couch, in my comfortable house, in my comfortable neighborhood, in comfortable Boise, Idaho, when all of a sudden I sat up quickly and agreed in my head to serve full-time as a lifelong missionary. If somebody, somebody would have told me that was going to happen 10 seconds beforehand, I would have grinned and gone back into the comfortable mode. Trying to describe the event is difficult, but it was like a comprehension bomb exploded in my mind. Things in my, la my life flashed quickly. My friends' lives, my experiences in this life. All the same conclusion. Jesus has to come soon, but we have work to do to make it happen. Turns out the kid is a videographer for NBC television in Boise, Idaho. He's been working for NBC for five years. And in May, comprehension bomb, as he calls it. Guess what he does? Next paragraph, he tells me. He sells his house above, above what he was asking for five days before he got on that plane. Sold everything he had except, uh, except, uh, except for some clothes, laptop, iPod, and a few other miscellaneous items. Look, as long as you have your laptop and iPod, you can go anywhere on this planet. <laughs> Come on, you know what generation he's a part of? Of course. He said, I sold everything else, but I got my laptop and iPod and a plane ticket. And I flew, to, I flew on July 17th. Get this. July 17th, I found myself getting off a plane in Africa on the way to do something I've never done before. Preach. Never had a desire to do it. Never wanted to do it. And at 25 years old, I felt too young and inexperienced. 
But God bless the meetings, though. Even in the midst of a city of about a million on the edge because of the intense fighting taking place just a few miles outside of town, every one of the meetings was packed to the brim over the course of two weeks. The desire to learn about the Bible and Jesus was powerful to witness. I'll be here in Africa for two years. After that, I don't know. Personally, I wish all 18 million of us in the church, he's talking about Seventh-day Adventists, I wish all of us were full-time missionaries at home or abroad. There is just so much needed. We'd have been home yesterday if that was the case. Man, I'm just so tired of seeing what I'm seeing in this life. I tell you what, I get a letter like this. The letter is, is, is burning around the edges in my hand after I print it off. And something gets ignited in my heart. And I pray this prayer, God of heaven, wake me up. Wake me up. Twenty-five years old. God of heaven, wake us up. We've got lives to prepare for Jesus. We have people to warn for Jesus. We have a world to reach for Jesus. God of heaven, wake us up, I pray. Pull out your Connect card, will you, please? It's tucked away. It looks like this. It's in your worship bulletin. I want to end with this. little Connect card because brothers and sisters of the Advent Hope, we can't come to an end of a teaching like this and just say, oh, well, that's great. I'm inspired now. I'll just look forward to Jesus coming. There has to be a next step we can take. Last week, stacks, two stacks, this high. Your guest here for the first time, please take a moment and fill this out. Let us know how you have found out about uh, this place. You've been here a few times in a row. That's great. We consider you a part of the family. Would you please put your email address on the front side of this card? We got several email addresses this last week that, that, that we could not read. We can't send you what you're asking for. There's material that you'll ask for here. So please make sure you legibly write your email address. If you're not sure it's readable, go ahead and include your cell phone so we can call you to ask you what it is. Turn the card over. It says, My Next Step. What's the next step we take together? We've got to do something. We can't just sit here and go home and eat that vegan cottage cheese loaf. Number one, I will claim... Oh, this is one I can... I can put a check mark by, and I'm sure you can too. I will claim the three divine promises for insight to connect the dots and discern, discern the trends of this end-time generation. You've been here a long time. You've been here a short time. It doesn't matter, but can you join me? Can you put a check mark right there? Why can't we? Of course. I, I will claim those three promises. Hang on to that study guide. You'll have those promises for the rest of your life. Never lose them. Never, never lose them. Number two, I will join you, Dwight, in praying the prayer, God of heaven, wake me up. Would you really? Would you be willing to ask Jesus to just wake you up like, like I'm willing to ask for me? Put a check mark there. Jesus, wake me up. And I'm putting it here, box number three. I would like information about becoming a missionary for Christ in this dark world. Last Sabbath, 146 of you checked that box. 146 people sitting around you said, I want to be a missionary. What do I need to know? Nobody's, you don't become a missionary tomorrow. We're not shipping you on a plane. But if you would like more information about how you can become a missionary, put a check mark there. Within 48 hours, we will get information to you and you can begin to think and pray about it. 25 years old, 
lying on a comfortable couch and he wakes up at 11.30 just like that and his brain is saying, you're going to be a missionary for me. It can happen that way. Sometimes it takes longer as I just kind of brood over the possibility. Don't worry about how. Just make your life available. Put a check mark there if you're interested. If you're one of the 146 from last week, don't check it again. You don't need to. But we've added a new one on the other box, in the other box, and so I need to draw that attention, draw, draw your attention to it. I'm interested in beginning a relationship with Jesus. Some of you are hearing material for the first time. You say, I didn't know there were any dots to connect. I didn't know that there's some kind of normalcy bias here, that the world's coming to an end. I didn't know that Jesus is the light that I'm desperate for. If your heart right now is sensing, you know what, boy, you know what, girl, I need that friendship. And you would like to know how. We'll send you something through cyberspace. We're not going to knock on your door. Just put a check mark there. Why not begin to grow a friendship with the one who is soon to come. Put a check mark there. I want information on baptism. Put a check mark. Nobody's going to be baptized next week. You haven't been baptized? This is the year. Normalcy bias means I have all kinds of time. Life goes on. No, you don't have all kinds of time. This is the year to make your decision for the Lord Jesus Christ. Put a check mark there. We'll be in touch with you. You take your time, but make the decision now. Don't put it off. Don't put the decision off. Now, here's the one we're adding. I'd like to serve on the prayer ministry team. You know, both of these emails from both young adults talked about a renewed sense of earnest praying. Earnest praying. You want to join a prayer team? You want to be strategic in your praying? Put a check mark there. We'll send you an email. We'll put you in touch. We'll put you in touch with the team. I would like to join that prayer team. I would like to intercede on behalf of this world, this campus, this congregation. Put a check mark there. The ushers are going to come in just a moment and receive these along with our morning tithes and offerings. But there's some life... Look, at 146 last week I didn't know. There are life-changing decisions being made right now, and I'd like to pray over the decision that you are wrestling with as you decide whether I put a check mark there or not. That offering plate will be by your side in just a moment. But let me pray first, and then we'll receive your cards. Oh, God. Connecting the dots. You can get there from here. We never realize that. The actual conditions today in a matter of dots, how many other trends are also connecting to that same destination, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, Father, children of the light, children of the day, shine that light brightly into our minds. Please let us know. And then with that light shining upon us, send us out into this world. If the world is just a block away or 12 miles away or, a, or an ocean away, send us out into the world with the light of the Lord Jesus, shining our light for the one who is soon to come. Take our mor morning tithes and offerings. It isn't a lot, but multiply these gifts to permeate your light into all this dark world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.